Outside, should I run and hide? How do I take my company worldwide? Do you love the law? Did you watch Hee Haw? What's the weirdest thing that you ever saw? What's it like in court? Favorite sport? Can you help with my book report? Is my hair too long? Am I right or wrong? And do you mind if I sing along to anything? Ask Alan anything in the world. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to this uh, episode of Ask Alan, the podcast. I'm Alan Crone, CEO of the Crone Law Firm. And uh, we have with us today a special guest, uh, Kent Phillips, who is uh, with uh, Tresvent Manor, a great facility in uh, East Memphis. And we're going to talk about uh, how he got to Memphis and uh, what makes Tresvent Manor such a great place uh, uh, to live. Uh, Kent, thank you for uh, joining the podcast. Thank you, Alan. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's it's my pleasure. And and one of the things I've really enjoyed about doing this uh, podcast is I've got to meet a lot of people that uh, that frankly I can't believe I haven't met. And you're in one, you're in that category. Um, you're so well known, and uh, you uh, got such a high visibility uh, position. I'm just uh, surprised that our, our paths haven't consciously crossed uh, in the past. That's true, likewise, and they're crossing now. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. That's right. Well, we were talking offline and, and you said that you actually uh, grew up in Denver, Colorado. I did. I uh, born and raised in Denver, Colorado. Did my uh, undergraduate work in um, electrical engineering of all things at uh, the University of Colorado, just up the street from Denver and Boulder. And um, meandered my way around through uh, various occupations and found a love for senior living. And uh, very short story, that, that brought me here to Memphis when I was in my early 20s. And um, I had never crossed east of the Mississippi River, had never been to the southeast of the country at all. And um, as a young 20-something-year-old, it was quite a culture shock to move from the Midwest to the Mid-South. Um, but I have loved it. I've certainly become accustomed to it. Um, I do not miss the snowy weather and the cold weather in Denver, Colorado at all. And uh, was lucky enough to meet my wife here, who is a native Memphian. And um, therefore, I've been in Memphis for just just over 30 years now. Well, very good. Very good. The, um, uh, I spent my birthday one year at the top of Pikes Peak, yes. uh, which I guess is near Colorado Springs. It is. And uh, my birthday is on July 20th, and it's the one and only time I experienced snowfall on my birthday. <laughs> it, it, that, that, that can happen in Denver during, during the winter. Um, and uh, it's, you know, it, I loved growing up in that part of the country where there was a, you know, a, a, a more harsh or more definite change of seasons. Um, you know, there's a lot of romanticism around the snowfall and Christmas time and those kinds of things. But, uh, but I can tell you, there was a day when I was in college and had to leave early for work and I walked to the parking lot and it was minus 20 degrees and there was ice all over my truck and um something clicked in my brain and i you know i figured there were probably better places to live um in this country during the winter time so when i got an opportunity to move to where snow is much more rare um i jumped on it <laughs> so it. now denver is a place i love to visit I love my family. I love to go see them. Um, I'll even ski once in a while, but uh, it, it is not a place I want to live permanently. So uh, does that make you a, a Broncos fan? It does. It does make me a Broncos fan. Um, and that's been a little difficult in the past five or six years. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm also a Titans fan. And um, even though I, I have no connection to the University of Memphis, my wife did get a, uh, a postgraduate degree at the University of Memphis. So um, I, uh, my son and I, my son who is 17 years old, 
and I are very connected uh, to Memphis sports. So we love to see the football games. We love to see the basketball games. And, you know, while personally that's fun to go and see those games with my son, it is just fantastic to see what that school and that sports program has done for the city of Memphis. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really an amazing thing. It's really boosted the morale, whether you're into sports or not, there's a, there's a level of energy and excitement that I think is just fantastic. So yeah, I'll watch the Broncos, but um, um, you know, as time goes on, I'm probably more a local fan. <laughs> did, um, did uh, growing up uh, and I don't know the timeline on the nuggets very well, but did you grow up with the nuggets? I did. Uh, actually, I, I, I have memories of going to Nuggets games actually when Larry Brown was coaching. And I do remember the merger of the ABA and the NBA. Um, and, uh, you, you know, the Nuggets have had some rough patches as well, but, they, but they've had some sparks of light too. Um, you know, of the three major league teams there, I'm probably more of a Rockies fan and a Broncos fan than I am a Nuggets fan. Um, but, um, you know, that's the, it's nice to be in Memphis where we have a professional basketball team because uh, I, I, I do love to watch the Grizzlies as well. So, Well, they say uh, that if you grow up with the NBA, you're, you're more likely to be, uh, which is which I guess it makes sense. You're more likely to be an NBA fan than if you you didn't. Um, right. I uh, I grew up with the the, the basketball Tigers. Uh -huh. I'm, I think as a result, I'm much more of a college basketball fan than I am an NBA fan, uh, just because I I understand the college game a lot better than I do the NBA game. Well, I'll tell you, it's interesting you say that. I I. Uh... First of all, I think you're right. I grew up with an NBA team, so I was more of a professional basketball follower than I was a college follower until um, we had the opportunity to, to live briefly in the Raleigh-Durham area of North Carolina. And of course, right there, you're in the heart of ACC with Duke and UNC and NC State. And, um, you know, that experience living right there and seeing some of those games and kind of learning more about the ACC really kind of switched in my brain. I'm now much more a college basketball fan than I am an NBA fan, um, you know, for all the right reasons, for the excitement, for the intensity of the game. Um, it's, it's just, it's a different, it's a different product and a whole lot more fun to watch. Well, we're, we're fortunate in Memphis that we got both. We've got the Grizzlies uh, and we've got the Tigers an old Miss, not too far away. If 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 that's, that's right. your cup of tea, so uh, it's it's not the research triangle that uh, uh, Raleigh Durham is, because that uh, that's that's the gold standard. That Maybe the platinum standard for college basketball, if 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 you're being real. Yeah, that must True, that but, be great to live. But you know, I'm 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 like everyone else. I'm I'm rooting for Penny to to uh, you know to uh, to compete admirably against those teams, and I and I and I think I think we have a really good shot of being right there up there with the elite teams um, this year and in the near future. So, you know, once again, pretty pretty exciting for um, our humble little city here. I think it's I think it's terrific. Yeah, it uh, it really is a fun time to be a sports uh, sports fan in Memphis. No doubt about that. It is. And uh, well, well, let me ask you this. You said something um, in the lead up there that I that I, I thought was very interesting. Um, you said that you that early in your uh, career, you got a passion for for senior living and working in that area. Tell me about how you go from electrical engineering to um, having a passion for senior living, which sounds awesome. <laughs> You know, I can, I can, I can tell you that being, um, I, I, you know, you, you, you start a major in college and um, I had gotten so far along in that major, even though in my senior year, I, I pretty much knew in my heart that I was never going to work a day as an engineer. Um, and that pretty much happened. I, I never really, um, getting the major was, you know, getting the degree was fine. And, um, and, and 
you know, it just, it just wasn't in my heart to do that kind of work. I, I can't explain why. I don't know why. It really doesn't matter. But, um, but actually, all through uh, college, um, I proudly worked my way through college, and I did that mostly in the restaurant business. And I had worked my way up in a, um, in a chain of restaurants based in the Denver area at the time and uh, had become a regional manager and was doing pretty well in the food service field. And so I went from college to food service and I worked in restaurants uh, for a long time. Um, actually, actually, it's an excellent background to what I do now um, in terms of uh, the hospitality industry and really understanding what makes people tick and um, forming positive relationships and providing a good service and things like that. But you know, I. It also gave me, working in the restaurant business gave me an appreciation for people that work in food service and those who have been in it a long time. That's a grueling, thankless job, especially at the management level. Um, a lot of hours, a lot of pressure. Um, I, I uh, maybe burnout is too strong of a word, but I think at some point after five or six years of doing that, I, I, uh, I knew it wasn't going to be a long-term career for me. So I was, as I said, I was in my early twenties. I, I knew I wasn't going to be in the restaurant world. So I, I literally just quit and took a little bit of time off. I couldn't take too much time off because I didn't have much money, but I took a little bit of time off and I, um, I answered a job uh, from the, I answered an ad in the newspaper to become an accounting clerk at a retirement community in Denver, Colorado. Um, a new concept at that time, which looked a lot like Tresvent. Um, but I got the job, started working for, I believe it was $4.75 an hour, and um, immediately fell in love with the concepts. I fell in love with the residents that I was able to interact with every day. Um, I became enthralled with how the financing of senior housing properties works. And um, I just kind of narrowed my focus to a finance career in senior housing and um, was eventually promoted to the CFO of that community in Denver, Colorado. That community happened to have a management contract with a firm based in Memphis, Tennessee. And that firm um, promoted me to be a regional uh, finance specialist and moved me to Memphis, Tennessee. And from that point on, I was largely a consultant in this field. So I uh, consulted with a lot of properties that looked like Tresvin. And, um, you know, it was, it was a blessing because I was able to see a lot of different retirement communities in a lot of different states. Um, a lot of different metro areas um, gave me exposure to, uh, you know, ways of running the business that I, that I could have never been exposed to had I not been that in that uh, consulting world. And um, I did that for a long time. Um, I can tell you, though, that being a consultant is, is uh, not always glamorous. It's not always fun. Many times you're brought in as a consultant because something is horribly wrong at a community. So you're brought in to fix what's wrong. And in the process of fixing what's wrong, you're not always the hero. Sometimes you're the, you're, you're the heel. But you know, a common theme that I noticed being a consultant in senior living was that I was always jealous of the people who worked on site. Uh, particularly the management teams who were able to interact with their residents and really influence their lives and get immediate feedback from them. Um, it's just a passion that you either, that either clicks with you or doesn't. And, um, and it clicked with me. So I, I was patient and I waited for my opportunity to really exit the consulting world and, and become an operator. Um, that largely happened with the position that I had immediately prior to coming to uh, Tresment. But um, being raised here in Memphis and having a passion for this business and in the consulting world, you know a little bit about a lot of uh, 
communities and I knew something about Tresnant. And it's quite well known, not only in Memphis, but um, in the senior living business that, that Tresnant is a pretty unique place, it has a pretty unique culture. Um, and you know has a very very wonderful resident population who is very engaged and that that just makes it for a fun place to work you know a very gratifying place to work um and so when the opportunity came along for me to be uh i was hired as the chief operating officer here at uh Tresment, but um, within six months i became the ceo and um I can just tell you, Alan, it's just such a blessing. I've, I, I've loved it ever since. I'm, I'm the lucky one that, that gets to be in this job. Um, you know, I truly love working with these residents. My staff is great. Um, Memphis, by and large, is very supportive of what Tresment is and what Tresment does. So um, um, that's what brought me to where I am. And I couldn't be happier. Well, what um, <coughs> since you've been in the industry, uh, for a number of years, what do you think are the biggest changes in the, the industry since you started to now? Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot to talk about. First of all, there is a, um, you know, the world of intensive healthcare is, is changing quite a bit. Um, you know, for, for many, many years, historically, uh, senior living comprised pretty much of uh, independent living and a nursing home. So really the two extremes of care in, in senior living. Um, what has, bless you. <laughs> Excuse me. What, you know, what, what, what has occurred over the last three or four decades is, is kind of a parsing of care. And so you have the introduction of concepts like assisted living, which bridges the gap between independent living and high intensity nursing care. And then specialty units, memory care units, um, you know, which, which focus on uh, dementia related uh, problems. And, you know, each of these programs have kind of developed in and of themselves. And what you see being developed now, um, you certainly see it in the Memphis area are, are a lot of standalone products that address each of those levels of care, each of those needs. Um, and, uh, you know, where Tresvent is different and where, where I think, you know, you see less development of continuing care products like Tresvent is where all of this, all of those services are available in a single package on a single campus. Um, I think that's important for a lot of reasons, but um, uh, you don't, you don't see a lot of that. You don't see a lot of new construction like that. There is one going up here in the Memphis area, it's the farms at Bailey Station in Collierville, and um, uh, but that's pretty rare in markets today. Um, so that's one trend. I'm not saying that's good or bad, but I think as the standalone products are built, that requires families to make decisions at multiple times as their parents age. Um, you know, you might move them into a facility with which focuses solely on independent living. Um, but then as they age and uh, you know need more supports then you've got to look at things like assisted living or memory support and then as they as their health declines um, you may need to look at yet another move into a nursing home whereas a place like Tresman, we we have that built in and in fact that's the product we sell we sell something called life care which um, you know helps the family plan for all of those um, all of those age-related transitions, and you know, you're making one decision. You know, you know what level of, you know, when additional levels of support are needed. You know, right where mom or dad are going to going to go. It's going to be right here on this campus. Um, it's a very unique product. It is expensive to build. You know, there are a lot of barriers to entry to do something like this. But, um, but I. Uh, you know, as the field develops and becomes more um, myopic at each level of care, I think you're going to see more and more of these uh, standalone products being being built. So that's one trend. Um, I think uh, I think what we're seeing now is we are seeing waves of um, of 
average age of residents as they move in, we will go through cycles where it appears to be getting younger and younger. People are um, you know, making choices earlier in their retirement to move into a place like uh, Tresvent and, and we'll see this in waves. But then um, when something you know, when something external hits like the like the recession in 2007, 2008 or COVID-19 this year, um, you you see sort of a halt in that uh, progression and people wait to see what's going to happen. And so they're aging in their homes. And then for a while, we will see a bubble of, of uh, older residents moving in. Um, older to us would be, you know, mid 80s, uh, where younger would be late. 70s. Um, so those are some of the trends. I think you're also seeing uh, on that on the healthcare side. I think I think everyone has an awareness of this that as uh, as hospital costs increase, um, you know, you are seeing lengths of stay in a hospital drop from what historically had been weeks to days to now hours, and those individuals who were you know going through a crisis and have a very, very short stay at hospital then come to us. And so uh, nursing homes are becoming far more acute than they used to be. And assisted living is kind of uh, filling in the gap of what a nursing home used to be. So those, so at each level of care, you're seeing a higher intensity of care required. Um, I know that's a mouthful, but that's, but those are the kind of trends we're seeing. What about demographic trends? You know, for someone like me, who's, who's, kind of close to this, but not really involved in it as you are every day. You know, I hear about the baby boomers and the, the aging of America and that sort of thing. Um, how do you see those demographic trends affecting your industry, not just now, but as that baby boom, um, you know, uh, surge comes off on the back end? Uh, what, how are those demographic changes affecting you or are they affecting you? They're not affecting us yet. Um, I'm a, I am a boomer. Um, I, I am at the tail end of the baby boom generation. So, uh, you might be in there with me. You might be a little younger. You'll pre, you're probably a little younger. Um, but, uh, but you know, we, yes, there, we have been waiting for the bubble to hit this industry. And, um, I do still think it's coming, but we've known about it for, at least two decades now, and and I think there has been a rush to, you know, build product to actually build real estate in order to house individuals, um, and I think that's a good thing. You're also seeing a trend that you know the assumption is that people, particularly boomers, might want to stay at home and choose not to move into um, a residential environment like Tresvent. Um, you know, that's kind of a different subject, but I'm not, I'm not sure that that's such a good idea because so many studies have shown that, um, you know, of all the various forms of healthcare that you can receive in your aging years, socialization in and of itself has the highest correlation with quality of life um, and the ability to remain independent as long as you possibly can. There are just many, many studies that, that really point to that correlation. And, you know, I, I understand that people want to remain in their own home, but as you age, remaining in your own home means more and more isolation, um, more and more loneliness, you know, lack of access to socialization and, um, you know, really a declining quality of life because of all that. So, um, you know, you might, you might expect me to think that living at a place like Tresman is a good idea since I run it. Um, but, but I really do believe that, um, you know, what you give up to move to a place like Tresman in terms of your house and your yard um, is easily made up for the, uh, call it holistic health benefit of living um, in, a, in a very social environment. Um, so I tell you from a, from a support uh, standpoint, Another benefit that, that at least personally, I felt like we got when um, my, my in-laws uh, went into a facility and uh, they, of course, got the socialization and everything you're talking about was, was good for them. But I, I felt my, my, my wife and her brother also got the ability of uh, consulting with the staff to help make decisions 
Whereas before they were kind of making them on their own and they didn't have any advice or support from professionals. And I think that's a big benefit for the people who are caretakers, uh, loved ones, uh, being able to get some objective advice on, on how to navigate everything from uh, you know, healthcare decisions to whether or not to take uh, uh, the car keys away from someone who, who can't drive anymore. Um, those kinds of decisions, I thought it was very valuable to have the, uh, uh, the advice of people who'd been there, done that. And, you know, they wouldn't say this is what you should do, but they could say, here's some things to consider. And I thought that was very helpful. It is. And, and that's, you know, a critical part of what we do here at Tresman is to manage that transition process, um, you know, not only for our families, but, um, you know, in cooperation and in agreement with our families. And, you know, it's one of the most difficult things we deal with because over time, as our residents are interacting with our staff, you know, in, in a lot of cases on a day-to-day -day basis and what we see and what we experience, you know, we know a lot more about those residents than their own family does in terms of what happens on a daily basis. So, so sometimes it can be you know, there can be some difficult conversations. I think at the end of the day, I think our families are, are very, very appreciative of the, um, of the transition team that we have in place and the procedures that we have to kind of monitor individuals and get them in the appropriate level of care. Um, uh, you know, I, I do think that they are very appreciative of that. And, and again, I would say, you know, while standalone communities can have some sort of function like this. Um, it's a little different here because in a lot of ways, when a resident moves in with us, we're, we're accepting each other for life, um, truly. And so we have, you know, we have a much better appreciation of wanting that resident to be cared for in the right environment and getting the right supports. And thankfully we have those supports on campus. It, it may be in a different building, it may be in a different apartment, it may be at a different level of care. But, um, but you know, the family made the decision early on and doesn't have to worry about the move. We do that, we handle that for them. Um, of course, we don't do anything that the family doesn't wanna do and we do everything in cooperation with them. But, um, but it is, it is, uh, it is a part of the value proposition that we offer that, you know, we are, we're truly watching after your parents for, for the balance of their lives. Um, that's what we do. That's part of, if you appreciate that, you really have a passion for this industry. And so um, we certainly do here. Well, my impression uh, as a lifelong Memphian, I've always uh, known about Tresman as long as it's been around and uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the history of the facility and particularly how uh, it, it always seems like to me that it, it, it's always been on the cutting edge of whatever's going on in this, uh, in this uh, industry. We are, you know, there's a, there is a name for what we do now. Uh, there's, there are a couple of acronyms that describe what we do. One of them is CCRC. Continuing Care Retirement Community. Another one is LPC, Life Plan Community. Uh, they both mean the same thing. Basically, you move in and you can age in place and we have all the supports for you. Um, you know, when Tresvent was first opening in December of 1976, there was no CCRC in Memphis. I'm not sure the term even existed at that time, but we were the first in Memphis. Um, you know, reading back through the minutes, there was a great deal of struggle trying to understand exactly what we were trying to do. Um, you know, a lot of uh, uh, a lot of people got together with good hearts, and um, one of those was a gentleman named E. H. Little, um, who is uh, pretty well known historically here in Memphis. Uh, became the chairman and CEO of uh, Colgate Palmolive. Um, and was an Episcopalian. And so, you know, there was a group of Episcopalians that, that got together and wanted to create a retirement community um, to serve, you know, uh, their group of 
families. And E.H. Uh, e. Little at the time gave, uh, I believe, a million dollars to the effort, a little bit more than that, um, equivalent to probably, I don't know, 40 million today, something like that. Um, so a large sum of money to get to get the building built. Um, interestingly, we're called the Tresman Episcopal Home. Uh, there is no real connection to the Episcopal Church beyond that initial founding. Um, uh, but we are true to our roots as a faith-based organization. Today, we welcome all faiths. We have a very, very strong spiritual uh, program, um, you know, which, which, which includes programming from all faiths. Um, so we are very proud of that. But, uh, you know, historically, so, so, so they built the tower. So initially, the 11-story tower that you see at 177 North Highland um, was all we were. And it quickly became apparent, well, if you're going to sell this thing called life care and you're going and you're telling people that you're going to provide for them for the balance of their life, you better have a nursing home. Um, surprisingly, that was not contemplated on day one. That was figured out after people started moving in. Um, so, you know, again, this is 40 years ago. Uh, so, so we built a nursing home. And um, actually, we just built a single level nursing home. And if you look at our nursing home today, it's three stories. Uh, that single level worked well for about five years. And then they figured out they needed to build more and had no land. So they built the second and third story on top of the first story and didn't shut down the operation at all, um, which is fascinating. It's why our nursing home has the uh, uh, architectural shape that it does today. Um, some would say ugly. I would say it's a building with character. <laughs> but anyway, that's what we were for a while. Um, it became apparent in the uh, around in the early 2000s that um, we needed to reposition our campus and refresh the campus. And so um, we were blessed to have access to some adjacent land um, just west of us. And so we tripled the size of our resident population and inventory tripled the size of our staff, uh, tripled our land footprint, and largely became what we are today. Um, but we were, we, we're a nonprofit organization. We've been nonprofit since day one. Um, you know, we've had a, a terrific set of governors on our board of directors really since day one. And I would argue we've got a fantastic set of board of directors today. Um, we have a terrific foundation that was formed, I believe, in 1985, but it's a pretty robust foundation, um, also with great leadership and um, and supports the activities of uh, Tresman where necessary. But uh, you know, in terms of a history of the organization, that's kind of where we where we are today. Well, I understand you've got a a very high ratio between um, residents and uh, employees. We do. It's it's a you know it's a it's a bit it's a bit unusually high uh, for our business. Um, there there are a couple of reasons for that. One of them one of that is just simply mathematical. Um, we we uh, you know we have a big concentration of our employees who work in the more intensive care levels in our assisted living building and in our nursing home. And uh, as far as um, communities like Tresman go, we we have a relatively large uh, healthcare operation. Um, so we have a lot more employees per resident than the typical uh, CCRC would have. Um, but I would also tell you that we, we, we have as a part of our mission to provide the best care uh, possible and certainly the best care in Memphis. And I think we do that. And I think our board understands this. I think our management understands this. I think the community understands this, that, um, you know, this is a person-to-person -person care. Um, we don't build widgets. Uh, you know, we, we care for individuals. And if you're going to care for individuals, that takes people. And so, um, you know, we, yes, we have a lot of staff working here, but we also provide the best service in town. Um, and, and I don't, I don't say that to boast. I say that uh, I say that with an element of pride, and I say that from the respect that um, Tresman's reputation was here long before I got here. So it's my job just to keep that reputation in place, 
And one way to do that is by having enough very experienced, compassionate people around to care for our residents. So, um, well, one one part of the Tresvent reputation is its its residents' involvement in the community and the vibrant, not just community life that's there, but social life. Um, uh, how does how do you, as an institution, uh, go about ensuring that that, and I know it's not effortless. I know that you have to be intentional about providing those opportunities for your residents. Tell me a little bit about how that works. You know, we were very intentional about the kind of social programming that we have in place. Um, you know, I, I would, um, I'd focus on a couple of things. Number one, we're, we're pretty proudly faith-based. Um, you know, we don't, Maybe we don't talk about that as much in our advertising as maybe we should, but but as I told you, it takes a lot of people to provide um, service to our residents who are going through some difficult times in their life and coming to grips with their own mortality, with their own aging. Um, You know, I think hand in hand with that process, I think you have to have a very strong spiritual program. So we're a little different than uh, than our peers here in Memphis, Tennessee that, um, again, we're probably faith-based. We have, we employ um, two full-time chaplains and have a very robust volunteer group of our residents who serve in our chapels and help with uh, services and, um, you know, help with one-on-one nurturing and care. Um, uh, You know, so that's a very intentional effort to kind of, uh, you know, have that level of care available when people are really struggling um, with, where they are in life. That's not only for our residents, but it's for our families and it's for our staff as well. Uh, we, be, we believe very strongly that since we have this uh, spiritual program, why not let our staff uh, tap into that as well? Um, so, you know, that's kind of the spiritual component that I think is important. It makes us a little bit unique. Um, I think that, um, you know, our programming in general is, is top-notch. Um, Kim O'Donnell is our director of resident services on the independent living side, and she really understands this business well. And she and her team and uh, people like Margaret Morton, who is our um, uh, certified recreational therapist who uh, works with our uh, residents in the healthcare areas. I think, I think the combination of, of, of that team um, providing, you know, a set of social activities that are very, very targeted to uh, residents where they are in life, you know, their individual level of care, um, you know, be it social, vocational, academic, spiritual, um, you know, every aspect of social programming we try to hit on and we, um, and we try to improve that every day. Um, you know, I think, I think that does pay off. Um, and it does create, first of all, our residents bring to us a desire and a certain social context um, that you know we 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 want to maintain and we want to nurture, but you know a lot of it is just the residents that we that we attract. Um, which, if I may go off on a tangent, it's a bit of an interesting time under COVID nineteen uh, because we are all about social uh, socialization and engagement. And during COVID-19, those are bad words. Uh, you know, you're, we are telling each other not, not to be close and not to socialize in the traditional ways that we're used to socializing. So, you know, like everyone else, we have had to learn to adapt and, um, uh, you know, use technology to the, to the extent we can and limit interactions as, as much as we can. But, uh, but again, it's that, uh, you know, our programming really revolves around that socialization. Um, you know, the other, the other point I'd like to make is that um, the, the volunteerism that exists here on this campus is just, is just tremendous. And um, our residents, I meant to have these statistics available, but um, it is several hundred of our residents regularly volunteer not only for programs that we have in-house, but to the greater Memphis community. Um, we've, we've done, um, you know, several uh, feeding opportunities with the uh, uh, 
Memphis Food Bank um, called uh, Seniors Helping Seniors, and um, where our our seniors actually fund and put together boxes of uh, a month's supply worth of food that we then give to um, seniors uh, who, in some cases, are are, are living in less fortunate uh, circumstances and may not have the funds available to get you know to carry them through the month, and so. So that's how our seniors helping pro seniors helping seniors program works, and we've had many residents involved in that. Um, gosh, we've had a program where we, um, you know, we have a bunch of teachers here, a uh, bunch of of uh, retired educators with uh, with time on their hands, and so um, our residents actually formed a group to uh, to um, mentor refugees, and we have been doing that for a number of years, um, and that's you know, that's a wonderful opportunity, not only to uh, give experiences to those refugees coming in and teach them a valuable um, resource that they need to live in life, but it's also a wonderful opportunity for our residents to socialize and, and remain um, stimulated. Uh, so, uh, Alan, I'll quit talking, but that's, but those are, those are just some, you know, just, just the tip of the iceberg of some of the opportunities that are available here for you know, residents to stay active, to stay connected, to interact, to provide good for not only uh, Tresement, but, but for the greater Memphis community. Um, you know, it's part of our nonprofit mission, and we really take that seriously that, uh, um, you know, as a nonprofit, you're, 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 given, you're given certain things from the community and you're expected to give back to the community, and that's one of the ways we do it. So. Y'all do a great job. Um, Appreciate it. Well, let me ask you. Let me ask you this: uh, Since you you brought up COVID nineteen, um, how how's everybody doing at Tresvent? Uh, I know all of us uh, are in our own way uh, fatigued by the situation. Uh, yeah. But how are how are your residents uh, doing? Um, under the circumstances of anxiety and uncertainty, uh, we're actually doing quite well. Um, I have the pleasure of working with a team that was tailor-made for this situation. Um, gentleman by the name of Paul Martin is our director of health operations. Uh, Paul runs all of our healthcare. Paul has a master's in health policy. Uh, so, you know, right after we had our first case in late March, I think it was, here in Memphis, Tennessee, um, the only thing that I personally did was to appoint Paul to tackle this. And I have stayed out of the way and just watched the magic happen. But Paul immediately got um, a group together of about 15 individuals, mostly management, but also team members of all the components um, of you know, everything we do here on campus. And we started meeting daily um, as an infection control team or as a COVID-19 response team. Um, and really put in place a set of policies and procedures to deal with the infection early on. I just couldn't be any prouder of, of, of what they were able to put into place early on. I'm also real proud, if I can be so bold to say I'm proud of our residents in terms of their willingness to listen to what we have to say, um, to be very compliant, you know, with everything that everyone knows now, but in the beginning, you know, masks, six foot distance, washing your hands and all that, you know, um, a lot of these new uh, policies were difficult to mandate, but um, a lot of compliance at every level from our staff, from our residents, from our families. Uh, some of the, some of the uh, procedures that we put into place early on were very controversial and far ahead of the uh, health department mandates and the various executive orders from, you know, county, city, and state. Um, but I really feel like we had the right team in place to do it. Um, it. And it built us a great level of confidence. I think among the senior living providers, that would be nursing homes, assisted living facilities, other CCRCs. I think we held out the longest with no infection. Um, you know, as time went on and it was clear that COVID-19 was not going away, uh, you know, eventually, like everyone else, we did see some infection, but the procedures we put in place, um, namely the screening procedures, our testing, we very, very aggressively 
uh, test our staff and resident volunteers and residents as needed. Um, and we were the first in Memphis to create an isolation unit in our rehabilitation center in our Allen Morgan nursing home. Um, so, so we had that isolation unit in, in place uh, really as a proactive measure in case we did see um, active spread on our campus. Uh, but it was also a, a brilliant way to bring new members into our campus and isolate and watch them and make sure that they're uh, COVID-19 free before they move into the general population. So, you know, all of that worked very well. It, the uh, infection control team really did all that. We're still meeting, we're still going through this because we're not fully opened up yet, um, but, but we are getting there. Um, you know, we are, we're really in, we're, we've been infection free any way you measure it uh, for some time now, um, which is to say, yes, we see little pockets. You know, we see individuals uh, coming up with a positive test, but through our contact tracing procedures, we, we are able to isolate them right away and get them either at home or in our isolation unit or whatever the case may be in order to get them in a protected environment so we don't see any uh, spread. So, you know, that's how we've dealt with it. But there, we're not, we're not here yet, but there will come a time when, um, you know, patients will start to wane and um, we're trying to balance that as a team and we're trying to open up as quickly as we can. We do now allow visitation. We have opened up our dining programs back up. We're doing a little bit more social activities where and when we can um, you know, we're trying to keep the balance in place to, you know, to try to return to some sense of normalcy while still adhering to the, um, you know, to the local mandates from, uh, from the mayor and from uh, the uh, Shelby County Department of Health. So, you know, by and large, um, I just went through an orientation with some of our new staff earlier this morning. And what I told them, I, I do truly believe that on our little 14 acre campus, inside our gates, inside our walls, this is one of the safest places you can be in Memphis, Tennessee right now. So um, I do truly believe that. And, um, you know, again, I'm just, I'm just honored to be a part of the team that's uh, providing that. So, Have you us. identified any, any silver linings in all of this? Any practices, whether social or medical, um, that you innovated as a response to the virus that you think, oh, this, this really uh, advances our mission. We're going to keep this no matter what happens with COVID. I think, I think in some ways it's a bit of a wake-up call. Um, and, you know, Alan, we, we have been uh, on the CMS nursing home compare page. We have been a five-star nursing home now for over a year, and we've been at four or five stars for the last three years. Um, we recently earned the quality award from the American Healthcare Association at the silver quality level. I know that doesn't mean a whole lot to anybody who's not, uh, you know, deeply involved here, but, but uh, it, that's a Malcolm Baldridge excellence program. And so, so, you know, we're really working hard to um, evaluate ourselves and, um, you know, we're really using as, you know, as many of these outside tools as we possibly can to keep ourselves honest and make sure that we're providing the highest level of care. And um, it's nice to receive some of these accolades because I think the wake up call is at a moment of crisis like this, you know, who rises to the, to the call and uh, who rises to the occasion and provides that excellent care and bestows confidence upon our residents and our families. You know, I really got to hand it to our healthcare team um, that they did that. So I hope that one, I hope that there's some memory in the Memphis community. Um, I should knock on wood when I say this, but it's not me doing it. I'm, these are really accolades for my team. You know, I hope there's some memory of how well we got through this event, the excellent care that we were able to provide the confidence that we were able to give to our families, the safety that we were able to provide to them and our staff. You know, I hope, I hope that that kind of stays with us. 
Um, you know, I think there are some interesting things with respect to um, masks and distancing and, uh, you know, some of these procedures that the, that the general public has, um, you know, been willing to adopt in critical times. And I'm, you know, I'm not sure that you might not see a refer, uh, resurgence during annual flu seasons of wearing masks and distancing and putting in some of those things in place. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm, I think it will be interesting to see how much of a flu season we actually experience this year, since we're all doing what we should be doing <laughs> to minimize the spread of those germs anyway. So, um, you know, I think, I think it will be interesting. I do think that there are some, uh, you know, with respect to the technical side about how we run the business. And I think some of the things that the Department of Health who oversees our licensing here on site has learned, um, you know, I think, I think there will be uh, uh, in the annual survey process that allows us to keep our license. Um, I expect that in that survey process, there will probably be far more attention paid to procedures surrounding infection control um, and uh, general response to, you know, flu pandemics and things like that. So um, that's just what I see in the near future. Well, Ken, I want to uh, thank you for your time. Um, I want to thank you for your stewardship of uh, Tresvent Manor and uh, that whole campus. I think many, many Memphians are like me. They've uh, had uh, a relative or two or a dozen that have uh, uh, been residents there and enjoyed the care there. And uh, uh, we hope that uh, it continues for many, many years into the future. Thank you, Alan. I appreciate it. And I love this time chatting with you. Well, thanks. And uh, uh, the uh, thanks for everybody on the, the audience. If you've enjoyed uh, this broadcast, please uh, share it or uh, email it, whatever the case may be, with uh, someone you think might uh, enjoy it. Uh, like and share us on social media and all that good stuff. And uh, until next time, this is uh, Alan Crone, CEO of the Crone Law Firm, thanking uh, Kent and thanking you for watching and listening to Ask Alan.